This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. You've probably never heard of the late 17th century French philosopher Pierre Bayle. He was raised a Protestant, but spent much of his life in more religiously tolerant Holland. It's a shame he's not better known, says Anthony Gottlieb. For Bale's writings are important, most especially, but not exclusively, for what he has to say about toleration. Anthony Gottlieb, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you. The topic we're going to focus on is Pierre Bale. Now, very few philosophers will have heard of Pierre Bale. Who was he? He was a 17th century French Protestant, and it's important that he was a Protestant because at that time very, very few people in France were Protestants. They were persecuted. He had a very hard time. And one of the things he's most important for, I think, is his work on religious toleration. He was, in fact, one of the best-read philosophers of the 18th century because he was the author of a historical and critical dictionary that was a reference book found in probably more houses than any other reference book. So he's an advocate of religious toleration as a result of personal experience? Yes, absolutely. His father and also his brother really died as a result of it. His brother was in prison and would have been released if he'd agreed to convert to Catholicism, but he refused. And Bale never really got over this. And as a result, his writings on religious toleration are sort of more passionate and more from personal experience than those, for example, of Locke or Voltaire. Though both Locke and Voltaire were themselves the victim of persecutions of various kinds. Not quite as bad. Bale felt it and suffered it more. And I rather prefer his writings on toleration. So how did he approach toleration? Well, the central concept for him was conscience. Now, he said, God gave us a conscience. Why would he have given us one if he didn't want us to use it? Now, suppose someone practices what is, from your point of view, the wrong religion. If they espouse their beliefs as a result of a conviction, if their conscience tells them they really have to adhere to this belief system, then it can't be a sin to do that. And that was really the core. Why couldn't it be a sin? Because many religious persecutors believed there was something fundamentally wrong with somebody who believed in the wrong God or the God with the wrong attributes. Yes, well, I suppose that's exactly what Bale was trying to undermine. And he told us a story about a French peasant who disappeared from his village. And about 10 years later, he appeared to come back. His wife thought that the chap who came back was him. Martin Guerre was his name. And she cohabited with him again and had children with him. A few years later, the real Martin Guerre came back. The imposter admitted what he'd done and he was executed, but there was no thought of punishing the wife because she had acted in a good conscience. And Bale thought that this was a good analogy for how we ought to treat people who believe, as it were, in the wrong God. So the thing that God likes is people using their conscience and following their conscience. And if they sincerely follow their conscience, in Bale's view they wouldn't go to hell if they ended up believing in the wrong God. Yes, absolutely, that's it. He also had various other arguments. One thing about Bale is there was always an absolute avalanche of arguments. And in fact, Voltaire once said 
he was the greatest dialectician, by which he really meant arguer, that has ever lived. Now, one of Bale's other good points, I think, on toleration is that every heretic believes that it's the others who are heretics and that he or she is the one true believer or that their group is the one group that is correct. Now, if it's justifiable and right for heretics to be persecuted, given the reality of the situation, there's going to be constant bloodshed. Everybody will be at everyone's throats, which, of course, is what happens. And Bale points out that this really doesn't sound very Christian. Is this really what Jesus wanted? So it's interesting. There are two arguments there, essentially. One is that heretics, by their nature, will end up in a kind of war of all against all because each one believes they're in the right. But the other one is, is an inference about what God must have wanted for humanity. Yes, well, Bale would use sort of any argument that came along if he believed in it and it was good. And it did seem to him, and I think to anyone who reads his book on toleration, which almost nobody does, that he makes a very convincing case. The title of his book on toleration is A Philosophical Commentary on These Words of the Gospel of Luke, 1423, compel them to come in that my house may be full. Now, that's an extremely unwieldy title, and the book is even more unwieldy. So once you've got to the position where you argue that you should tolerate a range of religions, you might not end up with the kind of toleration that we understand by the idea of religious toleration. I'm thinking of John Locke, who famously limited religious toleration to certain sects, certain forms of religion, famously excluding Catholics and atheists. Yes, that's right. Locke's form of toleration was really quite narrow because what he was most interested in was Christianity. I mean, to satisfy him, he he was really a little bit uneasy with most other religions. Catholics presented a special case for him, as they did for many writers on toleration in those days, which was basically a political one. It was thought that Catholics owe their primary allegiance not to any national sovereign but to the Pope, and that was a problem. And so for that reason, you had to be a bit careful with how much freedom you gave to Catholics. Obviously, this is in Protestant countries. Now, Bale also had a a bit of a special problem with Catholics because it did seem, according to him, and certainly in his experience, that Catholics simply could not stop persecuting others. So what are you to do with them? And I think there's some debate about what his final position is, but I think he's saying it may not be a sin for Catholics to persecute others if this really is what their conscience tells them to do, going back to his own argument. But nevertheless, it's got to stop. (laughs) So you tolerate them in your country, but you don't tolerate their persecution of others? Ideally, yes. And what about atheists? Well, actually, Bale was one of the, the very first people, if not the first known person, to openly say that a society of atheists would not necessarily be a bad thing. Now, he was certainly quite clear on the fact that they would be wrong and that there are various defects in their views, but he did think that the very common opinion that if you were to allow atheists to run a country, if you had a country where most people were atheists, it wouldn't necessarily be the case that you would have a complete moral collapse. And, of course, that was a very brave thing for him to say because, well, for one thing, it was extremely unpopular. For the other thing, it was purely hypothetical. There weren't any societies of atheists. There were barely any known atheists. Of course, now we know that he was right because of Denmark and Sweden for a start. On what grounds did he make that claim about atheism? Well, I think it was a rather good one and that he was right. What he said is, if you look around the world carefully, 
what determines how people believe is not necessarily what they profess in church on Sunday or synagogue on Saturday. It comes from their characters, their personalities, their circumstances, their human nature. One of Bale's admirers about a hundred years later, Bernard Mandeville, put it, and these aren't his exact words, but he, he put it rather nicely. He said, we ought not really to be surprised at an atheist being a good man, no more surprised than we are when we see a Christian who is a bad man. And obviously there are a lot of Christians and practitioners of other religions who are bad men. Indeed, in those days, all bad men were religious. Just to get that clear, he's saying that behaviour emerges from character more than from your religion. More than professed religion, exactly. And I think we have to say he's right. We don't generally find that the religious are better people than the unreligious. That must have been an extremely radical thing to write in those days. It was. It was completely outrageous. <laughs> and so very few people could admit to admiring that bit of Bale. That claim actually came in the context of his first book, which was a book about superstition and comets. And it was actually just a digression, but it was an extremely important digression. Was he persecuted for that? Well, he did leave France and spent most of his life in the Netherlands, which was famously far more tolerant. And that was one of the many things he was persecuted and criticised for. So Bale is quite remarkable as a, an advocate of toleration in a form that we would probably recognise it and could be applied today. Is that all that he's worth reading for? No, there is uh, also his importance as a defender of uh, scepticism when applied to almost everything except religion. Now, the form of scepticism that he wrote about, mainly in his historical and critical dictionary, but also in other places, was the form of ancient Greek scepticism called Pyrrhonism, which advocates the suspension of belief on all theoretical matters. And Bale argued that this was a very good thing, especially in what we would now call scientific fields, because we really don't know nearly as much as we think we do. In the case of religion, specifically the existence of God, his official position was that we should not be Pyrrhonists. We can't suspend our belief in the existence of God. We ought to believe in God. But he did think that Pyrrhonism was very good at showing us to what extent we have to depend on faith in religion and not reason. And this actually got him into trouble because in order to make this point, what he would do is attack an awful lot of theological arguments. He wanted to show that many theological positions, such as, for example, the view that an omnipotent and good God made the world and is not responsible for or, or blamable for evil, he wanted to show that none of the rational arguments in favour of that really worked. You had to just accept it on faith. So his official position, and I, I put it like that because there are some who believe this was not his sincere position, his official position was that scepticism is useful for showing us the weakness of reasoning and so uh, forcing us into the arms of faith, as it were. So we've had his toleration and his scepticism. Is that it for Bale or is there more? Well, there's quite a lot more. I mean, one thing which we have touched on briefly, and this is his sort of easing a part of the concepts of morality and religion. Now, we mentioned that he thought that an atheist society wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. 
So what that leads to is the idea that morality doesn't necessarily depend on religion. Now, that is a very important philosophical development. It was really quite new. Well, you can find some antecedents in Plato and in other places, but he was one of the most forceful advocates of that view. So I think that is very important. And presumably that was important for subsequent philosophy as well. You've mentioned Hume, who wrote about morality in non-religious terms. Were there other important philosophers who would have read Bale and similarly been influenced? I think pretty much all of them in the 18th century. And it's worth remembering that Bale was a big hero to many of the 18th century Enlightenment figures, especially Voltaire, but also Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great, Thomas Jefferson. All sorts of people regarded him as a hero, all sorts of people who weren't technically philosophers. So he had an influence both, as it were, in technical philosophy, but also on broader intellectuals and political leaders. Now, you've written a history of early modern thought, The Dream of Enlightenment, and included a chapter on Bale. That's quite unusual in books on philosophy I've read. Why do you think philosophers are so unaware of this really interesting thinker? Well, it's, it's not just philosophers. It's very rare, actually, to come across anyone who's heard of them, unless they're a French scholar of that period. It's hard to explain why he sort of so disappeared from the scene. I can understand why most histories of sort of pure and technical aspects of philosophy don't talk all that much about him. They usually do bring him in because of his influence on those who are interested in scepticism, such as Hume. But in a sense, his contribution is to Enlightenment philosophy in a broader sense, where we're talking about a moral and political and cultural attitude and tone. So we mentioned the push towards secularism, the ideas of toleration. His arguments are very powerful. Sometimes they weren't sort of purely philosophical. There's also the question of why he's not read today, and I think the main reason there is... He was astonishingly long-winded, very, very keen on digressions. Now, his historical and critical dictionary, which I mentioned, that was about six million words long, and more than three-quarters of them are in footnotes. So not terribly palatable format. So I'm not surprised that he's not on the bestseller lists now, but it's a pity that more people don't know about him. Anthony Gottlieb, thank you very much. Thank you. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us. We now have two more podcasts. Nigel has one on philosophers and places they're associated with, www.philosophysites.com, and I have a podcast devoted specifically to moral and political philosophy, www.philosophy247.org. Mm-hmm.